Today's show is brought to you by Rich Nutrients, New Zealand's premier provider of nutrient-dense whole food products. One of my current favourites is their organic beef and turmeric bone broth powder. And the reason for that is it's so convenient, you don't have to go through the whole process of actually making bone broth. And it's super tasty. If you visit their page, richnutrients.co.nz, click onto the shopping page and you'll find a Best Me tab. Under this tab you'll find all of the products that I use and recommend. Now as a Best Me listener, you have the opportunity to receive 10% off all orders over $30, which is a pretty decent discount. All you have to do is enter the Best Me discount code at the checkout, which in one word is Best Me, all in capitals. I hope you enjoy their products as much as I do. You can also find me at HealthFit Collective, which is exactly how it sounds, a collective of health and fitness practitioners, including physiotherapy, psychology, nutrition, we have movement coaches, personal trainers, massage, and much more. Our goal is to guide your dreams to reality, and we do this both within the club and online, offering tailored health plans, small group training, specialist services, corporate wellness, and education. So please go along and visit the page healthfitcollective.co.nz to find out more. You can also book a free 30-minute consultation with no strings attached. Welcome to Best Me Radio. I'm your host, Carl Hammington, and I talk to experts in many areas, including movement, psychology, nutrition, as well as other inspiring people who have done extraordinary things, all in an attempt to provide you with the information inspiration and tools that will empower you to step into the best version of yourself. Welcome back my awesome Best Me community. I've just got back from the beautiful Queenstown and the Ancestral Health Symposium which was totally up my alley (laughs) where I heard some incredible speakers from throughout the world and some of the best researchers on the planet talk on all things wellness and tying it back to ancestral roots and ancestral research. So in my opinion, it's the most powerful combination. It really helps us bridge that gap between where we are currently and where we possibly can be as individuals and as a species. I got to hang out with my friend Anna, who was on the last episode, and Daryl Edwards has also been on the show. Uh, He was actually presenting at the conference, um, which was a really, really moving um, and inspiring presentation, as well as taking us through some of his primal play technique, which is great fun. Uh, Go along and check out my, my Instagram and Facebook uh, where I actually put up some of the, the footage and images from that. It's a good laugh. <laughs> um, also, go along and check out today an interview on 100 Not Out podcast. Um, I was interviewed a couple of weeks ago by Marcus Pierce and Damien Christoph. Uh, for the other Kiwis listening in, they'll remember him from Downsize Me in New Zealand. And they interviewed me about gyms, body image, and you know aging well through movement as well as my five foundational movement principles which I haven't actually talked about before so I just put a link up on my Facebook page uh, so go along and check that out it's a it's a short and punchy one um, but it's good fun as well uh, today's interview is was very much anticipated and there were many listeners with many questions and uh, all of those questions were answered at the end of this episode um, on working memory. So I, I, there's so many usable nuggets in this one, so please go along and check it out. You'll learn what blueberries, barefoot running, and gratefulness all have in common, and why working memory may be even more important than IQ testing. Please enjoy and keep stepping into the best version of yourself. Welcome back, Best Me community, and today we have a very exciting guest, and that's Tracy Packiam alloway Tracy has a PhD in psychology with over 100 cited scientific articles on working memory. Her research is featured on the Good Morning America, the Today Show, Forbes, Bloomberg, 
The Washington Post, Newsweek, and many more. Tracy is the author of seven, about to be eight books, on popular science, education, and has some clinical textbooks too. She blogs for Psychology Today and the Huffington Post. Tracy is a speaker and has been invited to speak at over uh, 20 different countries worldwide. She has a great TEDx presentation called What Social Media is Doing to Our Brain. Tracy likes to investigate the link between working memory and ADHD, dyslexia, autism, motor dyspraxia, brain training, education, depression and mental health, natural movement and social media. Welcome to the show, Tracy, and thanks for coming on. Thank you so much, Carl. I'm really excited about being here with you. Yeah, and I know it's taken a while to get here, but we're here, and I'm very <laughs> excited to talk to you about uh, a few of your, those topics. Yes. First of all, just so people get to know you a little bit better, um, could you please share your story as to you know, how you ended up studying working memory and, and, and why? Yeah, actually, you know, there's one young boy that reminds me of why I do what I do, and his name is Josh, and I actually came to meet him uh, virtually. His mom had him uh, tested. He lives in the state of California. At the time that I had a chance to get to know him, I was living in the UK, in Scotland. And um, Josh is diagnosed with autism. And as part of his diagnosis, he gets assessed regularly by the state of California. And on one such assessment, they found that his nonverbal and his verbal IQ scores were average for his age, but that his working memory was below average. But the state of California, because they provide um, financial support for Josh's learning, said that because his IQ was in the average range, they were going to take away that funding because they reasoned that his learning should be average if his IQ was average. So his mom, you know, was spurred on and she started doing some research and working memory and came across my work and she got in touch with me and she asked if I would be willing to assess Josh. And I did. And when I tested Josh on his working memory, I found that his working memory was so poor that if you imagine a line of 100 children of his age, he was at the very bottom of that wow. line. He was in the bottom third percentile. Wow. So, you know, his mom was a real advocate, which was fantastic for him. And she took his case forward to a disability tribunal. And she asked if I'd be willing to testify about my research on working memory and learning and how important it was. And of course, I agreed and we set up the date and had everything ready to go. And the day before I was due to give my testimony, she caught in touch with me and she said, you know, the judge has decided to make a decision based on all the reports he's got. So you don't actually need to testify. And the judge ruled that even though Josh's IQ was in the average range, that because his working memory was so poor, that he deserved to continue receiving financial support for the state of California. Wow. And, you know, as a psychologist, it was so exciting to hear that the judge was recognizing mm. the importance of working memory and learning. And as a mother, I have two boys. One is actually around the same age as Josh. It was even more exciting to know that he would continue to be supported. Now, this was a few years ago, Carl, and I'm still in touch with um, Josh's mom oh, wow. over social media. And just earlier this year, she sent me an up-to-date picture of Josh. And she <laughs> said that that moment in time, that tribunal, that decision you know, that report, that changed Josh's life and allowed him to be the kind of person, the kind of student that he is today, successful, wow. you know, just unhappy and confident in who he is as a person. So that, for me, I have a picture of Josh that I look at regularly because he reminds me of why it's so important to keep doing this kind of research and keep talking to people like yourselves, mm. like your listeners, so that they can understand how working memory can make a real difference in someone's life. 
that's incredible. I mean, what an amazing mother for a start. Um, <laughs> Definitely. You know, to reach out and really look into it. And, yeah, the judge, that's uh, showing some real forward thinking, which is uh, hopefully yes. the way we're going. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Now, um, still probably a few people in the dark about what working memory is. Um, could you please explain to us, uh, you know, what it is and why it's important to have, um, quote, unquote, uh have the yes. advantage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, that's something my mom asked me too whenever I talk about my research to her. But <laughs> I think the easiest way to think of working memory is that it's your active memory. It's the memory mm. that you're using at the moment. Okay. The memory that you use to pull out information from your long-term memory. So a fact that you may have stored, someone's name, a phone number, yep. a piece of information. It's your working memory that draws that out of your long-term memory and uses mm. it at that moment in that conversation, in that interview, you know, when you're trying to communicate an idea, that's that active memory. It's, it's working. It's doing something at the moment for you by working together with information you've stored in different parts of your brain. Well, that's a, that's a really clear and concise uh, explanation. Thank you for that. <laughs> that explained a few things to me as well. <laughs> now, what would you say are the sort of primary influences of working memory? Both, both negatively and positively. <laughs> I know it's a big question. You mean sure? So, do you mean how working mem- what uh, working memory affects, or what affects working memory? What, first of all, what? Uh, let's go with what affects me- working memory. Yeah, I think that's really interesting. And, you know, the more I began to research, I first started off, you know, as I mentioned the story of Josh, I first started off my research um, looking mostly in the field of education. So in areas of ADHD and dyslexia, autism and so on. But Mm. the more I began to look into it, the more I realized that actually working memory or active memory is influenced by a lot of things outside of uh, education and also can impact things beyond education as well. So let's start off with the first part, what can influence working memory? That's really what drove us to write the book that you uh, just (laughs) referred to, the working memory advantage, because we see that working memory can benefit from really a lot of daily things that we do. And so I had a chance to speak to a group of incoming freshmen that's the first year students here at university in the US and they asked me to to give kind of you know what can what tips can you give a college student a first year college student to help yeah. them be successful and so i gave them these working memory hacks and some examples are the food that you eat can make a big difference to your working memory. In the book, we talk about you know things like boosters. What can give your working memory that boost? So right. one example would be food that is rich in flavonoids. So mm. you can think of flavonoids as the color in your food. The richer yeah. the color, the higher the flavonoids. So blueberries, yep. we know there's research to show that uh, a study found that people who took blueberries regularly for five weeks had improved working memory. That's just one example. There are loads of uh, food groups from dark chocolate, if you like chocolate. Mm, you know, have sounds a like a good excuse to have more of that. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. And in fact, the study looked at using uh, seven chocolate with 70% cocoa solids to make hot chocolate. So how fantastic is that? Wow. Right? So you can have your hot chocolate and get your brain boost at the same time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, lots of things like that. Food is one. Uh, sleep is another. In fact, yeah, a study great. came out last year where they found not so much the hours of sleep, but that learning just before bed can actually help you remember inf- new information for longer 
and also more effectively. You're less likely to make errors, so you're more accurate. So that's you know great. It's not actually telling us, hey, you need your nine hours or eight hours. It's just saying whatever those hours are, learn something new before bed, that's and you're more likely to remember that. Yeah. So there's lots of things like that. I I know you and I were talking about natural movement, and that's how we first began to connect. But um, mm. in my in our research too, we looked at um, things like barefoot running. And we see that barefoot running, natural movement, like climbing trees, you know, doing bear crawls and so on. Fun things that you used to do maybe as a kid in the playground, but we found that even adults, that can improve working memory. In fact, we found that in our sample of adults, uh, they range from anywhere from 20s up to people in their 50s, that their working memory improved by 50% after just a single session of natural movement. Oh, my God. That is music so, to my ears. <laughs> <laughs> so climate tree that's you know another great you know way in which we can improve our working memory very quickly great people that know me are going to laugh at that but that's just uh, reinforced a whole lot of things that i uh, i preach about all the time so thank you <laughs> fantastic yes science is on your side <laughs> in terms of food just to touch, quickly touch on a couple of things there yes. um I know there's a lot going on with, uh, you know, brain hacking and biohacking at the moment. Mm-hmm. And there seems to be a popular trend towards um, intermittent fasting and uh, yes. uh, ke- uh, cyclical ketosis. Have you got yes. anything to, to, to comment on in regards to, to that? Yes, actually, intermittent fasting can be really beneficial. We talk about that in the book Working Memory Advantage as yeah, well, right. where uh, it's Mark Matson has done a, a large number of studies, both lab-based studies and what they call ecological studies. So studies actually looking at people who do intermittent fasting, um, and they right. find that w- what happens during that time is that your body releases a protein called BDNF, and that's yep. actually very uh, so protective for your cognitive functioning. Effective. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. That's right. Yep. Mm. Um, and it's it's great for working memory. It can help keep you sharp. And intermittent fasting, if you happen to have have had a concussion or have you know kids that maybe play sports and have had a concussion, intermittent fasting is a great way to recover from that as well. Oh, great clinical. So there's a lot of yeah. yes, yeah. So not only is it just you know great if you want to function a bit more cognitively efficiently but also it's a great recovery technique whether it's you know uh, whether it's rugby or whatever that even a mild concussion you know what happens is everything gets obviously shaken up in your brain and that um, state of fasting and ketosis especially and and focusing on those flavonoid rich foods the omega-3 foods during a time of recovery is beneficial for your brain and so much so that even a lot of uh, medical doctors here that I've been in contact with have started implementing that in their practice when they see you know these high school students coming in from football practice with their concussions one of the first things they try to encourage is you just getting your body into a state of ketosis to assist with recovery wow um that's great it makes you wonder about the application for you know other neurological issues as well like you know alzheimer's and um Yeah, uh, also dementia. I don't know if there's any research on that at all. But. There, there isn't with intermittent fasting yet okay. and um, Alzheimer's and so, sort of more memory-based um, yep. difficulties. But certainly with epilepsy, there's been uh, – and, and seizures and so on, there is some emerging research on potential benefits of that. But oh. it's such a new field and it's also – uh, you know, harder sometimes to get people to be compliant to that. Mm, uh, mm. People like their food, so yep. it's sometimes hard. But um, And also it's easier with lab-based studies where you can 
induce certain conditions in your in your lab yeah. and then test how intermittent fasting is affecting that. So certainly the science is growing and it's, you know, um, and as I said, Mark Matson's a great person in that field that's doing a lot of pioneering work in that in that area of intermittent fasting, especially. Great. Thanks, Tracy. Now, um, also, you know, today I feel like we're presented with more stressors uh, or mm-hmm. more stimulus than we've ever been affected by uh, sure. human evolution. <laughs> um, what sort of effect does, uh, do these sort of uh, stressors or, um, you know, multiple stimuli at once, what sort of effect does that have on working memory? I think that's really interesting uh, question too, because a lot of times we think of stress in a negative light. Mm. But two things um, I think are really important to keep in mind. One, some stress is actually good for us because there's studies to show that it can encourage us to action. Yep. It can also encourage us to be, you know, not only proactive but also view something in a positive light. So there are mm. definitely there's a fine line between too much and too little stress. Yep. Yep. Um, and the second thing that I think is really interesting that was a huge survey that was conducted over a year and they asked people to rate two things on a scale of one to ten the first was to identify an event in the last year that um was was stressful and to rate that event on a scale of one to ten of how stressful that was so for example let's say you moved home or you you know changed jobs or you had a child and you you rated that on that on that stress level of anywhere between one and ten and then the second question was what was your perception of stress so let's say you felt that Mm. moving is a a ten you know you had to pack everything up and all these things and you know moving truck disasters and so on but actually because you were surrounded by good friends and family and you were excited about the new city you were moving to, your perception of that stress was maybe a two or a three compared to the actual event itself. So they found what was really interesting was that it was people's perception of stress that was um, linked to their mortality. So when they tracked them longitudinally, they looked at heart, you know, heart attacks, heart health, strokes, and so on. And it wasn't the the stress of the event as such as much as how they actually perceived that stress. So I think it's sort of to change the phrase, it's not stress that kills, it's your perception of stress that kills. (laughs) So you could encounter a very stressful event, but if you surround yourself, and this is the idea of working memory, it's where you focus your attention on. And if your active memory is focusing or choosing to focus on and it's the same thing with mental health, and I'll get to that in a moment. But yeah. if you choose to focus on, I'm moving and it's incredibly stressful, but look, look at all these people around me right now, helping me, supporting me, making great memories and so on. And you know, look at what I can look forward to in the new city, that your working memory is focusing on those positive events, then we are more likely to perceive it less stressfully, which will not only have a cognitive benefit but also as this survey showed us it can actually protect our heart our physical has a real cardiovascular benefit as well that's great so it's more about the stress experience and and mindset around stress being a exactly exactly and that's exactly what i found when i was looking at depression so i just published some research last year where we were looking at um depression we had a huge study just thousands of people different demographic backgrounds and we worked oh i worked rather with the british science festival at the time so we had a chance to recruit a you know a large demographically representative sample of people we looked at things like the optimism so that's your kind of outlook your perspective again um your working memory your active memory like we've been talking about and also their uh depressive symptoms and we found that there was a nice 
uh, line, if you will. So it starts off with your working memory. Your working memory is kind of this conductor, if you will, like an orchestra. It conducts your brain for where to look, and it helps people focus to be more optimistic. And if they're more optimistic, then they're less likely to experience depressive symptoms. But it all sort of starts, if you will, with your working memory that can direct whether you choose to view that event as, you know, glass half full or glass half empty. That is great. So you can almost step into that uh, that state. That's right. Yes, that's right. So it's not, you know, sometimes people say, oh, I'm, I'm just that way. I'm just pessimistic. I'm just, you know, I'm a realist. I just don't never see yeah. the good. And, uh, and here we're actually seeing that that's not the case at all. Really, it's your working memory. It's your memory that you can say, hey, I'm going to encode this positive experience right now. Mm. I'm going to frame it in a positive way and it's going to protect me and protect my mental health. Yeah. I always ask people actually, because this is something else I talk about a little bit as well, is, um, you know, think about the times in your life when you've grown the most and it's Mm -hmm. usually under, you know, what you would say were, you know, stressful experiences. They're such a great opportunity to learn. Yes, you're right. You're right, Carl. Mm -hmm. That's great. So, in terms of uh, negative influences, what would you say for working memory? What are the absolute no goes um, for, <laughs> <laughs> for, working memory? for for that negatively influence working memory? Yeah. Um, yeah, I think you know in the U.S. there's a lot of currently conversation of legalization of certain substances, and some states <laughs> have it legalized. I don't know how that is in New Zealand and Australia, but I think Still what's legal interesting here. is is it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So th- that's good then. Um, but I know a lot of people want to argue that it's not actually harming working memory. But in fact, some longitudinal studies find that it takes people longer. So while they may be equally accurate in their responses, it takes yeah. them much longer to get to that that sort of accuracy. Okay. So it, their brain just takes longer to, to kind of, you know, gear up and work and so on. So definitely, you know, you've, you, you're going to... So recreational drugs, not so much. Not Not so so much, yeah. (laughs) And I think coffee is another interesting one, or caffeine more generally, Mm. because, you know, we... I, you know, I, I have tea every morning and so on, and there's definitely research to suggest that loose-leaf tea can also have benefits for working memory. Yeah. Um, but when you're learning something new, what's interesting, the research shows, is that when you are doing an easy task, caffeine can actually help your working memory. But when you're doing something that is very taxing, it almost has a suppressant effect. It can almost make it harder to use your working memory in those conditions. So if it's, you know, something that you're revising or that you you already are somewhat familiar with and you just need to kind of get that quick boost caffeine can be a positive influence in your working memory but if you're learning something new and you kind of need to trudge through it all that it's you you know that that caffeine may actually be counterproductive for you that makes so much sense um for me i mean everyone who knows me as well they know how sensitive i am to caffeine is that right um, yeah it's uh it's actually a little bit scary (laughs) more than more than one coffee and i'm bouncing off the walls but right right for me yeah that's exactly it if i've got a very linear activity whether that's cognitive Mm -hmm. or physical um caffeine can help me get through it faster um but if it's something that requires a lot of cognition like say if i'm writing or even interviewing someone um, if i had if i had one or one or more coffees i I find myself just darting all over the place i can't stay on on track yeah yeah that's uh, that's fascinating especially with the move towards um 
you know, these brain hacks like, uh, you know, bulletproof coffee, for example. Right, right. Um, yeah, maybe just, you know, stick with one cup in the morning yeah. and leave it at that. <laughs> so many people are going, no. <laughs> I know, so I good. know. <laughs> right, and you actually don't need a lot. I, I actually had a post on my uh, one of my social media on Instagram. I try to do a what I call Memory Monday where I give a little working memory tip. And one of them was actually how little caffeine you need in order to help working memory work. And it's less than, I think, you know, an, uh, an average Starbucks coffee, it's a quarter of what you, you know, mm. the average person would take of a tall or uh, yeah. venti, I guess they call it. So you don't need a lot of coffee to see those working memory benefits. And yeah. Oh, that's really interesting. We've got such a huge coffee co- uh, culture here in Wellington. It's, uh, Is that it's right? Here. Yeah, it's not uncommon to have more than four or five coffees in a day. So. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A little bit scary when you know the science behind it, right? Um, that's really good. So, could we please uh, bring it back a little bit um, mm-hmm. to the mental health side? So, yes. say if I'm in, a, you know, a really a dark place, what mm-hmm. things, you know, can we start on straight away to to try and pull ourselves out of that cycle? From your perspective, yeah, I think one of the first things to do is gratitude. Actually, and there's a lot of emerging research to identify at the end of the day even just a single thing in which you're grateful for, mm-hmm. and that act again it involves your working memory because you have to reflect on your day you have to shift through the events of your day and you also have to inhibit what may be at that moment more natural so what may be your natural inclination is to say yeah i can't believe he said that about me or she said that about me and Mm -hmm. that's not necessarily positive or something you want to be grateful for so it involves a lot of working memory effort to inhibit that and say no i can't use that you know i have to keep scrolling keep scrolling look through those memories from today what's Mm -hmm. positive and it may just be I got to have a great conversation with someone for 10 minutes or I had a chance to have my favorite breakfast or, you know, it doesn't have to be huge. And, and, you know, I got a new job that I like. It could just be something small that we're grateful for. And I think that act and writing it down. And this is something I, I say a lot to people to just even keeping a journal so that when you are finding it hard Mm -hmm. to be grateful, you can look back and you can just remind yourself really of how good life can be you know when you choose to focus on those aspects and that doesn't negate that we make changes when changes are necessary but if you're in a place where it's hard sometimes it's great to have that gratitude journal just to again shift help a working memory shift on that optimism piece that we were talking about so to kind of circumvent a buffer against Mm. potentially those negative depressive type symptoms Oh, that's great. Um, and it seems to be a common theme, actually, with a few people I've interviewed. The, you know, the emphasis mm-hmm. on gratefulness and gratitude is fantastic. Sure. In fact, yes. I've just started taking a um, or encouraging my daughter, Brooke, to take a gratefulness journal. Uh, oh, writing it every morning and it just seems to really yes. change her mindset for the day yes yeah we do the same thing in our house the last thing before bed is oh, we great. say one you know one thing that you're grateful for every yeah. day and you know sometimes it takes a while <laughs> yeah. to come yeah. up with that idea but again that's where your working memory comes in because you actually have to shift and and update and focus on what truly you're grateful for oh, that's so good I'm going to come back again to something you said earlier um, about learning how before bed yes um mm-hmm. That sounds really, really interesting, like a great tool. But it's a little bit of a contrast as to what a lot of people do now, you know, just talking to a lot of my clients and, and yes. people around the, the, the gym. Um, it's not uncommon to, to, you know, to get a little bit caught up on Netflix or on your smartphone sure. device. Um, yes, yes. Is there any anything you're aware of, any negative influences uh, 
from these smartphones or uh, watching, you know, mindless TV before bed? (laughs) Well, I think it's not so much what you're doing, but um, there is research that's shown that the blue light that electronic devices emit can affect melatonin, which regulates your sleep cycle. So you might find that while you're getting the same number of hours of sleep, the quality isn't there because your sleep cycle is you know, has been interrupted because of the blue light. So there are a couple ways forward. I mean, there's three ways forward. One is if you, if it is possible, take an hour before bed where you don't have any uh, electronic devices. So, you know, read or talk to someone or so on, but you're not actually looking at a screen. But if that's yep. too hardcore for you, yep. then the second option is uh, some, a lot of electronic devices now have a backlight that minimizes that blue light, like a kind of sleep mode or evening okay. mode light. Um, it's sometimes called a red light or an orange light, and some yeah. people actually will change the light bulb in their bedroom to, you know, provide that that sh- that shift and mm. that change in the light too. Um, so those are some ways forward if you wanted yeah, to either maximize your phone options if that's available for you, yeah. or even just changing the bulb in your room. Um, that's great because yeah, there again, seems to be a big you know, move to LEDs yeah. now. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <Eek>. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that's great. So we, we talked a little bit about what influences um, working memory, but what does working memory influence? <laughs> yeah, that is, there's a long answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> this is pretty much your book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Can you run through your book for us in 10 minutes? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can in five minutes. <laughs> uh, but one of the, as I mentioned, my starting point was with education. And in fact, in my own research, I've you know, as you mentioned, uh, Carl, over 100 published studies. And one of the consistent patterns is that working memory is a key predictor of academic outcomes, right from kindergarten, right up to the college age population. And we find that sometimes it's an even bigger predictor than traditional IQ scores. And the reason for that is if you think of an IQ test, a lot of it draws on knowledge that you have about the world. So a traditional IQ test would ask you to you know, give a definition of a word like yeah. what is bicycle or what is breakfast or, you know, mm. friendship. You have to define those words. So you really have to draw on knowledge and maybe you had opportunities to read more so you can answer that very articulately and maybe you didn't. And so that would jeopardize the kind of score that you end up getting. And so, um, and we find, um, I actually had a study done with a colleague in South Africa because one argument is, well, how about the nonverbal IQ, you know, the, the ones that use the patterns and the shapes and so on. Surely that is more culture fair and maybe not so knowledge driven. But with my colleague in South Africa, we found such an interesting pattern that even the nonverbal tests were so susceptible to cultural differences. And, you know, if you think about the kind of toys we give our children to play with, that already sets them up for how they can take these IQ tests. Do we give them blocks so they're familiar with that? Do we give them Mm. puzzles already, you know, that follow these shapes, put them in these ways? And so kids who already play with those kinds of games from young are probably more familiar with the kind of nonverbal IQ tests. And so already Mm. they have an advantage from a young age. So we're seeing that, you know, all of these things can affect IQ, but we don't see that when it comes to working memory. So in contrast, I've published a lot of studies where we look at different socioeconomic levels of children, whether the mother um, wasn't able to finish high school or whether she's got on, uh, gone on to get a graduate degree. So the kind of things that would affect a typical traditional IQ test, we find 
don't affect a child's working memory. And a big reason for that mm. is because it is your active memory. It's just mem- it's capturing your potential to learn, your potential to use that memory. And I sometimes use the image of a post-it note for yep. working memory where you have that space that's you know fixed and you're using it at the moment and it's not affected by the information you have on there, you don't have on there. It's yep. just how big is that post-it note? And so for me, that's very exciting from an educational perspective because it's an equalizer. It's saying yeah. it doesn't really matter what kind of socioeconomic background the child has. It doesn't matter how many books they've read. If they have a good working memory, we can provide them you know, that kind of learning blocks and they have those working memory skills to take on those blocks and use them and learn effectively. Well, that's amazing. Thanks, Tracy. That's uh, <laughs> that's really powerful stuff. And it makes you uh, question, you know, whether we can, you know, in these lower SES uh, sure. areas, whether these might be some useful um, tools to apply further down the track or even now. Sure, so, yeah. It's a big growing gap. So mm-hmm. I'm going to come to something uh, to your your TED talk actually so I'd like to talk okay. about you've got a very unique perspective on you know, social <laughs> media which I you know caught me off guard at first I'll be honest and I really enjoyed <laughs> I really enjoyed that talk so everyone listening please go and check that out um, thank you please explain uh, what your talk was about um, that was fascinating. Um, yeah actually like you said the title was Facebook fearless and how social media can actually be good for your brain and I you know the perception is often that social media is making us you know not as smart or you know actually (laughs) negatively affecting us but i've got a number of studies where i was actually able to look at how social media can be good for brain and in two ways the first is how we use our attention and again there's a lot of um negative uh i guess perspective on social media that it's it's causing this kind of ADHD type brain we can't focus and so on so I contrast this with the kind of brain we used to have pre-social media I call it the spotlight brain where you just focus on one thing at a time and um, you know there's a great study which I talk about in the the TED talk as well where you know people are asked to count how many times a group of people are passing a basketball from one person to another and they're so engrossed they're using that spotlight attention that spotlight brain Mm. focusing on counting that they never notice when a man in a monkey suit or an animal suit comes out and kind of do, does a little dance. And you yeah. can find the great YouTube videos for this to show this happening. But they miss it because mm. of the spotlight brain. But today's world isn't like that. No. There's so much going on. We have to multitask. And, and I think social media, what I found in my own research, I was looking at adults and I found that those adults who use social media more, I call them active users, yep. compared to my passive users in my study, they had this what I called a floodlight brain. They could multitask. They could take on board multiple pieces of information. They could prioritize all these different things and work with that. So that's a real advantage, I think, in our society today because, you know, we can't go back and change how things are. You know, we're expected to do multiple things simultaneously. We're expected to answer emails, take phone calls, you know, maybe tweet something or and so on. All of this, you know, in a very rapid pace. And I think that's actually helping our brain adopt this floodlight approach, which is which can be really productive, can be you know really helpful for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So this rather is... than trying to resist it, um, right. go with it and practice it, and, and try and apply. I'm guessing you're saying sort of a mindful yes. approach to that uh, that floodlight brain. Is that right? 
Exactly. Yeah, mm. exactly. Um, and the other way I think that social media can actually help us is specifically with working memory. And in this study, I was looking at a group of high school students, I think at close to 200. And I found that those who had used social uh, media for longer had higher working memory scores. Yeah. And at first I was puzzled, just like you. I thought, whoa, I wasn't expecting that either. But when I thought about it and, and looked at it a bit more closely, I realized that when you use social media, it's like a mini working memory workout. And here's yeah. why. If you think of that feed, that social media feed that you have, you're constantly scanning information. You have to update what's relevant for you. You have to inhibit <laughs> what's irrelevant. And that's all a working memory task. We do do that in a conversation where we're listening and we think, oh yeah, that's interesting. That is just like what Susie told me last week. Or you could be thinking, oh, I've heard this story about 10 times. I'm yeah. going to ignore it and then come back in. So that's exactly what we get to do so when we use social so media. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And we get to practice that. We get to practice prioritizing what's important and ignoring what isn't to us. And it's a great, you know, uh, working memory workout. And so one of the things I mentioned is that if you want to maximize that, the next time you're on social media and a friend's name pops up, try to remember something that they said in their last post. So you can say, oh, Jane. Yeah, that's right. She said last week she was going on a trip uh, to the mountains. Oh, I can, you know, send her a little note, ask her how that was. So you're kind mm -hmm. of, you know, updating information constantly and, and then now applying it to keep your working memory active. Great. So um, probably best to do that not right before bed on your smartphone, no, right? <laughs> definitely. That's right. <laughs> or use speech to text. <laughs> That's really I, – I love that. It was, it was such a, a game changer for me. So thank you. <laughs> now, as a, as, a, as a parent as well of two beautiful little girls, um, mm -hmm. what can I – what would be the best things for me to do or other parents out there to do to ensure – you know, the best advantage, uh, you know, of working memory and uh, good mental health as well. Yeah, free play. <laughs> oh, that's free music to me. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> There's a number of studies that have come out over the last few years supporting the benefits of free play compared to more structured activities. So one such mm. study looked at children who had excuse me, highly structured activities. So by that, I mean, you have baseball Monday night, piano Tuesday night, art Wednesday night. So everything is structured and set out for yep, you. Yep. Um, and, and, you know, those are great. Um, you know, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, I'm a parent too of two boys and it's obviously fantastic to have that as well. Yeah. But what they found in contrast is when you say to the child, you have one hour, go <laughs> out to the garden, do you know, go do it. Exactly. And the reason that that is so beneficial for working memory and even larger kind of cognitive goals is because, first of all, it encourages social interaction. They actually have to learn that idea of cooperative play. They have to learn how to play together, to negotiate, to navigate. Mm, you know, I want to so. do this. No, but I want to do this. Yeah. Um, the second thing that they learn is goal-setting behavior. So they actually have to identify, you know, their own goals, whether it's, in my in my boy's case, catching a frog or, you know, <laughs> uh, building a sandcastle or, or building a mini fort for the frogs that they've caught and so on. Yeah. Um, but so they have to cr create a goal. That's the second thing. And the third is they actually have to, um, you know, then find out how to accomplish that goal. So identify that goal and then finding a plan. And studies that have looked longitudinally, so over time, have found that, Children who engage in free play more often are able to transfer this goal-setting behavior into everyday life as well. So not just in play, but they're more likely to solve their own problems at school, at home, rather than kind of running, you know, to the parent in that learned helplessness, you know, this idea that, well, I, I can't do it. You have to help me, mom or dad, or, you yeah. know, I, I always mess up or so on. That free play gives them that confidence that 
you know, hey, I can solve this problem. I did this once before. Or yeah. I've solved it here in this case. I can do it here at school or at home yeah. as well. So, yeah, the, the single best <laughs> advice that I would give and I take as well, I, I implement as well as a parent is yeah. Let for, for adults too, you know. It must, yeah, uh, yeah, 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 definitely. <laughs> Sounds like a good excuse for me to get out yes. and run around in the bushes. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. Thanks, Tracy. So, what would be your favorite couple, one or two uh, memory mm-hmm. tool, uh, sorry, working memory tools or exercises for the listeners, if that's possible to explain verbally? <laughs> yeah, um, that's great. So I think a great memory tool, I would give a physical one, actually, and that's barefoot running. And um, we published a study last year looking at the benefits of barefoot running, and we found that in as little as 16 minutes, it's one six, yep. we found significant improvements to running barefoot. So in our study, we looked at people who were runners who could run, you know, on average two to three miles uh, at a comfortable pace. So again, mm-hmm. we're not you know you don't have to be a marathon runner or anything even if you can manage two to three miles and we looked at them running with shoes and without shoes and um, what was interesting in this study is we also added another dimension where we were looking at an indoor track just for ethical reasons we had to use an indoor track rather than a field or yeah exactly yeah Um, so in order to kind of create that um, idea of barefoot running outside where you have to focus where your foot is landing so you don't step on a you know a rock or pebble yeah, or a twig yeah. or yeah. Uh, if you live a in rusty Florida, old nail. Yeah, yeah. yeah yeah exactly <laughs> all of those things that's right and um, we put poker chips down on the track and we told them that the uh, the poker chips were the safe areas so you have you wanted to land on there so we measured their heart rate we measured their pace how many poker chips they were landing on and so on and we found that it was only when they were running barefoot with landing on the poker chips that improved their working memory. So wow. even when they ran with shoes landing on the poker chips, it didn't have that benefit. So I think a couple of things are going on. One, that barefoot, um, being barefoot is offering, kind of forcing you, if you will, or encouraging or facilitating the runner to be more attentive. And yep. so you have to, you know, instead of tuning out or kind of zoning out yep. as some runners like to do, you have to be attentive so your working memory is active. It's like that you're getting that mini workout right there at that moment. Beautiful. So I think that's the first thing that's happening. The second thing, the poker chips, is you again have to be attentive to the ground as well. You're getting yep. that constant, you know, uh, feedback, sensory feedback as well yeah. that's helping you decide what's safe, what's not. So you're, you're navigating, you're shifting, you're updating, you're saying, oh, that's not the safe spot, that is the safe spot. Mm. So even uh, we also looked at barefoot running without the poker chips, and that didn't make any difference. So it has to be, you know, a a terrain that you're somewhat attentive to. So if you, you know, are trying this in a treadmill, for example, maybe stick some little, um, you know, post-it notes or something that you have to try to land on just to kind of maintain your attention on that treadmill as you're running barefoot. So I love that. I mean, I wonder if it's, you know, partially because your body is, is constantly problem solving. You know, yes, you, you that's know, right. Yeah, the smallest of micro, you know, problems. Whether you're, you're, like you said, you're processing that information around landing on that route or not, or you know, it's yes, just, it is quite tiring. I found uh, cognitively as well. Like a, you know, yes. twenty minutes barefoot run in the bush feels like about three hours on the flat <laughs> yes that's right and you're right especially you know that's something that um we do with our boys too every weekend we we find a trail and we're running barefoot on that but it is mm. so cognitively demanding because 
there's so many sticks and sometimes you see armadillos or you can find snakes <laughs> on the trail. So you, you have to be very, you yeah. know, attentive to what you're stepping on um, as well. So calling is a huge benefit. Um, the second tip is actually one that I gave on our uh, local morning show just last week in celebration of World um, Alzheimer's Month. Yeah. And it's something, uh, you know, you just had mentioned Alzheimer's and dementia a bit earlier. Yeah. I call it listed. And it's a fluency game where you give yourself, you know, you can start with 10 seconds yeah. and list as many animals as you can in 10 seconds or mm. many colors or, uh, you know, food or fruits or any category you want. But the reason that this is so great for your working memory and it's one you can do in the car, you don't actually have to put aside a big amount of time to do, yeah. excuse me. And the reason this is so fantastic is because if you think of the pathway from your front of your brain to the back of your brain, your hippocampus, your long-term memory, yeah. um, sometimes if we don't use that information, it gets overgrown with weeds. And these kinds hmm. of fluency games have been found really effective in keeping that information active and keeping your, your brain sharp. So in other words, your working memory has to go back to your long-term memory and think, oh, gosh, what are all the fruits that I know? Yeah. Or, you know, what are all the flying animals that I know or the swimming creatures? And so it's it's helping you keep all of that semantic information that you store in your long-term memory yep. active and something that you can use regularly. And in fact, that is one of the things that is often used in a gold standard measure to screen for Alzheimer's, really? uh, early signs of Alzheimer's and cognitive decline, this idea of how well, you know, how fluent their, their memory is. So this is, as I said, you you know, in 10 seconds, you can do that. In 30 seconds in the car, yeah. you can do that. You can do it with yourself. You don't need a, someone to help you do that. So it's a real, that's my second quick takeaway for your listeners. That's great. So you've got barefoot running and list it. I'll, I'm going to yes. start uh, <laughs> applying that straight away. <laughs> I feel like my short-term memory is not great. So, <laughs> so I've got a few um, listener questions for you and actually I've got a lot so <laughs> I'll try and filter some <laughs> I, I put the I put up a post about half an hour ago and I think yours has been mm -hmm. the pop, most popular so far so it's obviously oh, an area that intrigues a lot of people so this one's from Paula and it says uh, she says what is poor memory how is it diagnosed and then if someone does have poor memory is it reversible <laughs> yeah, those are great questions, Paula. And it is diagnosed from as young as kindergarten right up to an elderly population. A great uh, quick test for your working memory is something called backward digit, yep. where you hear a sequence of numbers and you have to remember them in backwards order. So if I ask your listeners now seven, three, can you in your head, you know, out aloud say that in backwards order? To yeah. put it in some kind of perspective, the average adult, so 20s, 30s, even 40s, can remember, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the average adult can remember about five numbers in backwards order. Yeah. Um, you know, so that obviously starts, you know, from as young as five, they can remember anywhere from two, around two numbers in backwards order. Okay. And then it starts declining. By the time we hit our 70s, the average seven year old, 70 year old, excuse me. Yeah can remember about three numbers in backwards order. Interesting. And so the second part of Paula's question is, can it be improved? Absolutely. And I think that's what's been so exciting in the last 10 years. Excuse yep. me. And what's really prompted me uh, to write the book, The Working Memory Advantage, is because we're seeing that it is changeable. We can do things, whether it's from the food we eat, the yep. daily activities that we do, um, you know, when we learn, learning before bedtime and so on, the way mm. we, we can, there's a lot of protective measures that we can take to keep our working memory sharp. That's great. Um, 
there's so many take homes from this. So there's <laughs> another one here, um, and it is: is our memory actually affected through pregnancy, or is that just a myth? Um, no, it's not a myth at all. It's a great question, and I had written a blog post about that in Psychology Today a while back, that hormonal changes can actually affect our memory. So this idea of pregnancy brain okay. is a real thing because okay. it does change the way we use working memory. It happens in adolescence as well. Yep. In addition to the structural changes that are happening in the adolescent brain, there are also obviously chemical changes that can influence how uh, working memory is, is used. Right. So this one's from Anna. Um, I feel like you might have partially answered this already, but if your working memory is poor, how mm-hmm. does or how could that impact your reasoning, decision-making, and behavior? Yeah, that's a great question. And I've also done a lot of research, and, and others have as well, looking at decision-making. Oftentimes, with, with poor working memory, we tend to make more um, impulsive decisions, yeah. and we want to respond more quickly like we feel a pressure to respond quickly rather than in a considered way Um, i just finished a big piece of research in my lab where i was looking at um, moral decision making so the kind of you know philosophical questions the train is coming at uh, is coming at some people it's going to you know kill a certain number of people but you can save the day what how can you do that what will you do and we were able to look at high versus low working memory responders and we found that the high working memory people would take longer to respond mm. and they were more likely so in other words they wanted to consider the options they yep. wanted to actually you know think about that and they were also more likely to respond in a utilitarian way that is mm-hmm. they would uh, respond in a, in a rational rather than a more emotional kind of quick what um, psychologists sometimes call the hot button response exactly okay. the, the reactive responding yep. so that's a big way uh, you know if you're finding that you're working with someone that's very reactive yep. uh, and responding very quickly it may just be that you know for whatever reason they're operating on a low working memory phase maybe you know lack of sleep or some, yep. something's happening yep. that's not allowing them to work efficiently amazing so one from Amanda, can we re-remember things? <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can. So oftentimes there are two stages of memory. One is encoding, yep. how you get the information in. And the second is retrieval, how you get the information out. And to re-remember, if I'm understanding her question correctly, um, I think she's not talking about false memory. I think she's just talking about how you pull that memory out. Is yes, that, am I yes, sorry, that how correctly? you pull okay. out yep. Yeah. In which case, then, cues are great. So a study found that when you are learning new information, if you give yourself headings, for example, like you're saying, okay, this is, this is the category that I'm learning now. Okay, now yep. I'm learning this category. If you put them in groups and you have a, a label for each of those groups, it helps you then recall that information more often, uh, you know, more effectively. Wow. Um, another tip, and this is maybe more for, for students, but of any age, they find that uh, when they're given quizzes often, even if they're not graded or they don't know the grade for their quiz, yep. they're more likely to do better. And again, it's this idea of constant retrieval of information mm. um, okay. that can help. So that's the retrieval piece that can you know, be a, a few. So if you're studying for an exam coming up or if you've got, you want to give your kids some tips for how to study, just quiz them. And even if they get it wrong, just that constant quizzing yep. will keep bringing that information back to help them you know, retrieve it Jury efficiently. Response. Yeah, fascinating. Mm-hmm. So this one is from Greg, and he mm-hmm. asks – uh, during the busy working day, uh, what can we do? What easy to apply technique can we use that will benefit our working memory? 
Yeah, that's great. I don't know if Greg's going to like my response, but <laughs> a study <laughs> a study found that actually rosemary and lavender, uh, excuse me, rosemary and peppermint essential oils actually boost working memory. So if, oh if God, Greg feels like putting a drop of peppermint, and if he's not, then they find that peppermint gum uh, may have similar benefits. But mm. what happens is it helps with acetylcholine, and that's like a, the one of the uh, chemicals associated with memory in the brain. And they find that those two particular essential oils are highly effective in improving working memory. Wow. So you could, you know, put a dab on a, on a tissue in your pocket yep. or, um, you know, as I said, if, if Greg's not into I, essential I, I oils. Think, I, I, I feel like Greg might be into that. Yeah. <laughs> well, I go for that. If not, there's peppermint gum as a backup. Okay. <laughs> I can see Greg. He's one of my work colleagues, actually. I can see him walking around oh, with a little, right? with a little okay. tissue with essential oils on it. <laughs> He's been known to do stranger things. So. <laughs> um, one from Diane here. Oh, we're nearly there, by the way. <laughs> there's a lot of questions. Um, what impact does tiredness have on working memory? That's a great question. So a study found that when you have uh, a lack of sleep or when you're tired, other parts of your brain shut down, like your language center, your Broca's area. And so this can result in this tip of the tongue phenomenon, you know, where you're saying, oh, gosh, why can't I speak today? I just can't think of the right words. That's because your language center has shut down because you're tired. And as a result, your working memory has to step up and do two things. It has to do the job of your language center as well as comprehend and actively piece everything together. So it's doing, you know, multiple jobs, which obviously can make you feel even more tired at the end of the day as a result. Okay, thank you. So last one from Bart, Mm -hmm. and he asks, if you could explore um, the mechanism or explain the mechanism of how mindful movement may influence psychological trauma. (laughs) Trauma. Yeah. Hmm. Okay, that's a big topic. Yeah. Uh, I know that. <laughs> it might be another podcast. <laughs> yes, that may be. I mean, we've done some research looking at, for example, PTSD in veterans and working memory yeah. and stress and anxiety. But um, in the context of mindful movement, one sort of emerging research that I know of is looking at virtual reality environments mm. and how that can actually be a great. Um, type of therapy with PTSD and trauma because it it doesn't involve any uh, you know verbal communication but it can help them communicate some of the emotions that they're feeling and I know that's a little different from mindful movement but it can help mm-hmm. them kind of you know put themselves in that position yeah. Um, yeah. of of being able to experience some of it but in a safe context you know being able to then discuss that in a safe therapeutic context so no that's great thank you there's so much um so many gold nuggets uh from those questions actually so thank you (laughs) seems like you could answer anything i throw at you so i'm tempted to ask more (laughs) but i know we're coming up on time so um i do have one uh, final question for you and that is the one Mm -hmm. i ask every single person on the show (laughs) if you could inject the entire planet uh, with one idea, uh, a technique, or even a question, what would that be? I think it would just be to be aware of the value of working memory in everyday life. And it's because, you know, we use it so much 
maybe we don't even realize that we'd had a name for it and it's called working memory. But as some of your questions show, we use it in our decision-making. We use it not just in education. That's one of the first things to decline is, you know, for those experiencing Alzheimer's or dementia. So it's such an important skill. And that would be what I'd love to impress with your readers, that it's something you can be aware of from a very young age. And it's something that you need to keep with you throughout your life. And in fact, we, we didn't talk too much about this, but um, some studies have found that working memory can act as a buffer against the cognitive decline associated with Alzheimer's. So it's wow. really the kind of skill that is incredibly important, but also can protect how we keep our mental fa- you know, faculties even as we age. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. So someone who has Alzheimer's, for example, um, mm-hmm. it may be worth practicing some of these techniques. Yeah, the list is great. Um, In our research, we found that drawing uh, was really helpful for um, older adults and it actually improved working memory because they were just given a blank sheet of paper and said, you have 20 minutes, draw what you like. And at first, it was overwhelming for them because they wanted some structure, but then it is a working memory task. Again, they have that, it's like free play. You have to have that goal. You have to set your goal. You have to figure out how you're going to achieve your goal. And we found that just after 20 minutes of coloring, our um, elderly population showed improvements to their working memory. Wow. So, um, Tracy, what are you working on now and where can people find you? Yeah, I have um, a number of different exciting research. I especially like that last question from Bart because we are currently investigating childhood trauma and how it may persist into adult life and how it affects working memory as well as mental health. So that's our ongoing project, and I'm working on that with a colleague over in Iceland, actually. Oh, wow. Um, so we're looking at a cross-cultural perspective there. Um, I would love if your listeners check out tracyalloway.com. Yeah. I try to post links to all my current research and, um, you know, any any books and other information like that can be found on that website. I'll, I'll post links to that as well. Um, and I can vouch for your, your social media has so many little useful tips and tools. Um, I've been trawling through it lately <laughs> and there's so many usable um, tools there. So highly oh, recommend going you. on and checking that out. Hey, thank you so much, Tracy, um, for today. Um, I feel like I can keep talking to you and I can ask you any question and you have a great scientifically proven answer for me <laughs> with some uh, really easily applicable tools. But that, that was just amazing. Um, and thank you again. That was so much fun. Yes. It thank was. you for having me, Carl. <laughs> now, best me listeners, please head on over and visit Tracy's website and the links provided. And please go along and check out thewellnesscouch.com uh, and bestme.co.nz for the podcast, blogs, um, and what we're up to as well. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll talk to you next time. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.